This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our next one is an unforgettable tale about an American icon whose voice everyone knows. On this day in history, in 1989, Mel Blanc died. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. Let's take a listen to the story. If you added up all the hours from your childhood, chances are the voice of Mel Blanc made up the majority of dialogues spoken to you. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety, Sylvester, Yosemite Sam, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, Wiley Coyote, Roadrunner, Elmer Fudd, Barney Rubble, Tom and Jerry, Woody Woodpecker, and the Tasmanian Devil to name just a few of Blank's voice contributions. This man embodied a sense of innocence and good nature and was so adored and respected that all who knew him had something to say about him. For the sake of time, I won't be introducing all those who contributed to this story. They are fellow animators, inkers, and painters from Warner Brothers, Disney and Hanna-Barbera, animation and film historians, directors, voice artists like Hank Azaria from The Simpsons, Mel's former agents, film critics, his son Noel, and friends such as Kirk Douglas. Without any further ado, let's jump right into the story of Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voices. Allow me to introduce myself. Mel Blank. What an amazing guy. What's up, Doc? <laughs> oh, goody! You can't look at the Warner Brothers characters without hearing his sound, his voice. Launch! There's such a delight to the sound of his voice in every character he did. What did I say? What did I say? Think about it today that everybody imitates these characters he created them. Gosh, what a crazy, screwy duck. That, my little cherub, is strictly a matter of opinion. Mel was so unique at what he did. Mel had the range that everyone wishes for. Great horny toads, I'm up north! Gotta burn my boots. They touched Yankee soil. I think it was a shock when I got older and discovered all those voices were one man. His voice was like more powerful than a human body could contain. Open that bridge, Farman! Open it, I say! Close it! Close it! Close it up again! So it seemed to be coming out of every part of him. Mel Blanc had this phenomenal voice box. That's the only way I can explain it. He just did all kinds of things that were just amazing. He didn't just do voices. He played characters, and there's a difference. I think I've got it! He was just able to do that, to just totally, like, you know, animate with his voice, to create a complete three-dimensional character just with his voice alone. I say, that's no chicken, son. I'm a chicken. 
Rooster, that is. How can you beat a pair of vocal cords that had an eight octave range, perfect pitch, great singer, and an incredible actor? There's Mel and there's like everybody else. There was nobody better than Mel Blanc. You know where Rosetta Cat? Howdy doody. About that egg. Melvin Jerome Blank was born the youngest of two children on May 30th, 1908 in San Francisco to Russian Jewish parents, Frederick and Eva. After leaving New York to seek his fortune prospecting for gold in the Klondike region of the Alaskan Yukon, his father eventually settled the family down in Portland, Oregon. As a young boy growing up in the melting pot of the American West, Mel Blank would forever be affected by the medley of foreign accents and the way voices define personalities. My dad was always interested in voices and in music and in singing and in entertaining. He started to entertain in grammar school. From around about the age of 10, Mel Blanc was um, very interested in dialects, Yiddish dialects and Chinese and Japanese dialects, Russian. The school would have an assembly, the grammar school. I would entertain the kids with a dialect story or one of the diff- a different dialect each time. And uh, the kids loved it, and they got such a big kick out of it. They laughed, and the teachers laughed, and then gave me lousy marks. <laughs> Here's what Mel wrote in his autobiography, That's Not All Folks. Except for music class, I loathed school. To be truthful, report cards C's and D's had little to no effect on me, but that applause. What an impression it made on a 12-year-old. Now, where'd that boy go? You gotta be a magician to keep a kid's attention more than two minutes nowadays. My talents weren't appreciated by all. In particular, a crotchety old teacher by the name of Washburn. When I broke up a classroom discussion by giving an answer in four different voices, she reprimanded me sternly. Too sternly, if you ask me. Oh, Shut up! You'll never amount to anything. She said scornfully, You're just like your last name, blank. Her stinging insults so shamed me that when I was 16, I started spelling my surname with a C, B L A N C, instead of a K. Later, as an adult, I changed it legally. I often wondered if Mrs. Washburn associated Mel Blank with the young student she had ridiculed so many years before. He dropped out of high school in about the ninth grade. I used to say, I got lousy grades, but uh, I I developed some great voices because of the echo in the school in the hallways. He started leading orchestras. He was an orchestra conductor, and the orchestras moved all around the Oregon area and the Washington area and Northern California area. In between when he was conducting the music, he would do shtick. He'd do different voices and different comedy routines. Mel was the youngest orchestra leader in the country at that time, at 17. And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blank. And by the way, if you're a teacher, if you're an adult, think about how you're talking to kids. More on this remarkable American story here on Our American Stories.
get that wabbit. What would you want with a wabbit? Can't you see that I'm much sweeter? I'm your little senorita. You are my type of guy. Let me straighten your tie and I shall dance for you. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Mel Blank. Let's pick up where we left off. I think my dad never thought of Hollywood when he was young. He thought of going on the radio when radio was quite new at that time. Well, Mel came from the world of vaudeville and radio, a world that's that has long disappeared. Most people don't even know what it was like. In those days, radio was a much bigger business than, than movies. I mean, people forget that, that radio was the single most driving force in you know, American popular culture. And of course, radio is ideal for a, you know, a schooling for someone who was going to do cartoon voices. In 1932, with the blessing of his parents, he jumped into his 1920 Ford Model A convertible and drove south to Los Angeles hoping to find a break. Instead, he met a young woman named Estelle Rosenbaum, a bright and attractive girl with a radiant smile who would become his biggest supporter for the rest of his life. She also shared Mel's deep interest in radio. Mel, 24, and Estelle, 22, married that spring and then proceeded up Route 101 back to Portland to write, produce, and perform their own sketch radio show called Cobwebs and Nuts. To maintain audience interest six hours a week, Mel had to come up with countless voices and lots of material, which was then presented to Mel's one-woman audience for approval. My dad played a hundred different male characters. My mother played all the different female characters. And uh, they had a great time, although they were only paid $15 a week to write it, produce it, and voice it. The show failed to provide a livable wage for the blanks. So Mel seriously considered quitting in order to become an insurance salesman at a whopping $50 a week. Thanks to Estelle's encouragement, he rejected the offer and followed his dreams and talents back to Los Angeles in 1935. Here are Estelle's exact words. Mel, if we're going to be broke, at least let's be broke someplace where it's warm. I had seen some of the Warner Brother voices, or heard some of the voices on the, in the cartoons, and I thought, geez, they're, they're missing out on an awful lot. The voices are pretty bad. Usually, Norman Spencer was there to greet him. I said, I'd like to audition for you and show you what I can do. He says, I'm sorry, we've got all the voices we need. I said, but Mr. Schlesinger said that you were the one. He says, no, I'm sorry. Well, I was as stubborn as he was, and I went back in two weeks, and I said, look, won't you just listen to me? He says, I told you, we have all the voices we need. So I was still as stubborn as him, and I went to him every two weeks asking him to please listen to me. And he says, I told you a hundred times, I've got all the voices we need. So he kept knocking on the door for two years. Finally, in March of 1937, Mel's perseverance paid off. It was probably the week before Christmas. He came looking for a job, and that day, Treg Brown was sitting there. Treg Brown, brilliant sound effects man for the Warner's cartoons. He happened to take over when this fellow passed away that wouldn't let my dad in the door. And I said, Mr. Brown, I've been trying to get in here to audition, just have him hear me. But the guy kept saying, no, uh, I've got all the voices we need. 
He says, well, let me hear what you do. So I auditioned for him, and he got a big kick out of it. He said, would you do it again for the directors? I said, gladly. Warner Brothers decided to give Mel a shot in a supporting role for Picador Porky, a new cartoon animated by a 25-year-old lanky kid named Chuck Jones, featuring the studio's latest character, Porky Pig. He said, uh, I've got a cartoon coming up with a drunken bull. Do you think you can do the voice of a drunken bull? So I said, yeah, I think I could. He says, how would he talk? I have a talk like it was a little, and looking for the looking looking for for the sour match. He says, "Great, great." He says, "What are you doing next Tuesday?" I wasn't doing the damn thing. I said, "I think I can make it." <laughs> Warner Brothers quickly recognized Mel's talent and offered him the prized role of Porky Pig. He says he's a timid little character. I told him, well, I want to be real authentic about it. So I went out to a pig farm and wallowed around with the pigs for a couple of weeks. And I come back and they kicked me out and said, go home and take a bath. When I did, I come back, I said, if a pig could talk, he'd talk with a grunt, you know. Oi, 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 that's Porky talk, with a grunt. They said, oh, great, great. In that same cartoon, he introduced a, a kind of embryonic version of Daffy Duck. <laughs> Don't let it worry you, Skipper. I'm just a crazy darn fool duck. <laughs> now, here's a guy suddenly doing the craziest, most energetic voices they've ever had in one cartoon, and I think that that's when they suddenly thought, I think we're going to hang on to this guy. It was Porky Pig and Daffy Duck that put Leon Schlesinger's Warner Brothers Cartoon Company and Mel on the map. But it was another character, a cool, sly, and wise-cracking rabbit with a flair for survival named Bugs Bunny who would become his most famous and unforgettable creation. Bugs made his cartoon debut on July 27, 1940 in an 8-minute and 15-second short titled A Wild Hare. They showed me a picture of this little rabbit, and he's going to say, hey, what's cooking? I said, instead of him saying, hey, what's cooking, why don't you have him say, hey, uh, what's up, Yonk? That's the, the new uh, expression that was uh, being so popular. And I said to Mr. Schlesinger, I said, why don't you name him after the guy who drew the first picture of him? His name was Bugs Hardaway. Why don't you call him Bugs Bunny? What's up, Doc? It's a wabbit down there, and I'm trying to catch him. Well, they told me that Bugs was a tough little stinker, and I thought, what kind of a voice can I give him? The tough character, maybe Brooklyn of the Bronx. So uh, I put the two of them together, Doc, and that's how Bugs Bunny came out. Pardon me, but you know, you look just like a wabbit. Uh, come here. Listen, Doc. Now, don't spread this around, but, uh... Confidentially, I am a rabbit! The film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Short Subject, Cartoons. Over the next 20 years, Mel would give life to nearly the entire cast of Looney Tunes characters. 
Daffy is not a lisp. People say Daffy lisp. No, he is spraying the water out of the <laughs> lip. It's not a lisp, by the way. I thought I got a itty bitty pudding cat. Tweety was a little baby bird. So I gave him a little tiny baby voice. Ooh, I thought I got a pudding cat. And Sylvester was a big sloppy cat. So I gave him a big sloppy voice. Speedy Gonzalez was a little tiny mouse. Gracias, señorita, mi amor. Adios. Hasta la vista. And he had to talk fast because his name was Speedy. So I gave him a very fast little voice like this. My name is Speedy Gonzalez. I did just wait for the game to give it to the mouse. I think. See, he talks so fast you can hardly understand what he says, I think. Just to think, radiant flower. You do not have to come with me to the Casbah. We are already here. He chased the pussycat and catched them and kissed them. I gave him more or less of a French voice, like so, a voila. And uh, I said all the French words wrong, you know. Now all of you skunks, clear out of here! Yosemite Sam, they showed me he was a little cowboy. And he was only two feet tall with long red hair and had to be recognized, so I had to give him a, a recognizable voice. So I gave a real loud voice, like so. My name's Yosemite Sam. <coughs> this is one that almost gets me every time I use it. Other studios called upon Mel for his one-of-a-kind talent. MGM and Walt Disney were quick to offer roles. But perhaps his most famous non-Warner Brothers voice was Woody Woodpecker, which he created in 1940. And I remembered in school that I had a crazy laugh. I used to do it in, in the school, in the high school, and run down to the end of the hall to hear the echo. It would just echo all the way around, never knowing that this would turn out to be the voice of Woody Woodpecker. Which is a <laughs> just added that little pecking at the end. And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blank. And he was so lucky. I mean, he had a wife, Estelle, who said, if we're going to be broke, let's at least be broke someplace where we're going to be warm. What a lucky guy. And also, bumping into a man named Chuck Jones is pretty good luck, too. More on the life of Mel Blanc, his remarkable story, here on Our American Stories. Duck hunting's all the rage and they won't let me be. And I'm so full of bullets, I'm lit up like a Christmas tree. Wabbitwax. And you just can't help but smile. And we return to the story of Mel Blanc, and we're about to pick up where we just left off. But of all the characters Mel created, Bugs remain the fan favorite. And it's easy to see why. Arriving on the screen shortly before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Bugs became a symbol of American strength in the face of the enemy. The quintessential Yank. The tall man with the high hat will be coming down your way. Get your savings out when you hear him shout. And he bonds today. Come on and get him, folks. Come on, skip right up and get him. Because of what was happening in Europe and, and, and the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, audiences just found his sassy control of the situation just so heroic. Coolness in the face of danger. Damn. What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? Listen, stranger, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. It ain't. 
The Blanks gave birth to their only child on October 19, 1938, a son named Noel. This stretched the Blank household budget to the breaking point. At his wife's urging, Mel decided to ask for a salary increase from the tight-fisted, savvy head of Warner Brothers cartoons, Leon Schlesinger. Hello, Parky. Come on in. Hello, Leon. Well, Parky, what's on your mind? What can I do for you? What Schlesinger offered Mel was unprecedented for any voice actor to date. Sole screen credit on every cartoon produced by the studio. When his voice characterization by Mel Blanc went up on screen in the early 40s, it's the same time that the radio people started utilizing his name in the credits. Jack Benny started to put him into the credits. Abbott and Costello, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Dagwood and Blondie, Amos and Andy. He was on every show, Jack Carson, Joe Penner, and they started to use his name at the end of the credits. Also on tonight's show were so-and-so, so-and-so, and Mel Blanc. Mel was modest about his fame, and he enjoyed his private life. He made friends with everyone he worked with, but it was his friendship with Jack Benny that Mel cherished most. Wednesday night used to be ping-pong night. So ping-pong night used to get all the people that were on the radio show, uh, Lucille Ball and George Burns, Gracie Allen, and Jack Benny and Jack Carson, they'd all come out and play ping-pong. My dad would make them soda fountain drinks, and then they'd go home. Mel is thought of as just a voice man, but he was so much more. His timing was outstanding. You know, you can be, you can be a comic, and if you, can't, if you don't have the timing down, you have the best material in the world, it's meaningless. But the fingers and clumsy, the world's foremost jugglers, Fearless Freep and his sensational high-diving act. Fearless Freep, that's my boy! It's the acting. People say, oh, Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voices, greatest voice man that ever lived. One of the best actors to ever come out of Hollywood. People don't take the voice person as seriously as they would like the, the Olivier's or Dustin Hoffman, De Niro, but, you know, to say, you know, Olivier, De Niro, Blanc. It sounds weird because of what genre he worked in. But no, he was a brilliant actor. There! Now I won't be able to get the bird. Oh, Mr. Pudgy Cat, don't you like me anymore? I, I think... I think... I, I think you're... I think you're... Delicious! I'll tell you what I think Mel Blanc's geni- most genius achievement was. And only if you're a voice actor do you realize how incredible this is. When Bugs and Daffy are fighting over whether it's rabbit season or duck season, and Daffy Duck comes out dressed up as Bugs Bunny doing a Bugs Bunny imitation, then Bugs Bunny comes out dressed as Daffy doing a Daffy impression. What's up, Doc? Having any luck on those ducks? It's duck season, you know. Just a darn minute. Where do you get that duck season stuff? You know how hard that is to do, to take your own character, have it imitate another one of your own characters? It's almost impossible. Because if you try to, like, combine two voices that you're doing, you kind of just land in the middle. Like, if I try to do Apu imitating Mo, it'll sound just like Mo imitating Apu. There's no... We tried it one day at The Simpsons. We were talking about how we were marveling at Mel Blanc's ability to do this. And we all tried to do 
one of our characters imitating another one and have them sound different, and we couldn't do it. You know what to do with that gun, Doc. I'd say, you know, Dad, you're an incredible actor. I said, here's a picture signed by Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Says to the greatest actor I know, Mel Blanc. I said, Jack Benny used to call you a great actor. Did you know you were a great actor? He says, No, no, I'm not real. I'm a voice person. But he didn't realize that was acting. He never took an acting lesson. In all of his cartoons, when Mel wasn't performing all the voices, his chemistry with his fellow actors was apparent. None more so than with Arthur Q. Bryan, the voice behind Bugs's adversary, Elmer Fudd. Here's Brian and Blank rehearsing in the studio for the 6 minute and 49 second cartoon classic released in theaters on July 6, 1957, What's Opera Doc? The bit we just heard bumping in after the commercial break. The short is informally referred to as Kill the Wabbit, after the line sung by Fudd to the tune of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. I will do it with my spear and magic helmet. Your spear and magic helmet? Spear and magic helmet. Magic helmet. Helmet. Magic helmet. Magic, yes. What's <clears throat> It's a shame. That was going well. Almost I don't think I'm right yet and I'm going to kill the rabbit, am I? That's fine. That's fine. Okay, kill it. In 1994, 1,000 members of the animation industry ranked What's Opera Doc? number one on the list of 50 greatest cartoons of all time. Mel and Arthur acted out the combative relationship between Bugs and the tiptoeing, shotgun-wielding Elmer in over 30 cartoons over the span of 20 years until Arthur's passing at the age of 60 in 1959. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting wabbits. <laughs> the classic voice of Elmer Fudd needed a replacement. Chris Freeling, one of the directors, said to me, uh, Mel, will you do a couple of lines for, uh, for Elmer Fudd? He says, I've tried others and they can't come close. He said, just can you do a couple of lines? I said, oh, I don't try, but I don't know if I could do it or not. <laughs> he says, that's it. So I also became Elmer Fudd. Whereas audiences felt sorry for the witless Elmer Fudd, the pint-sized, pea-brained, ornery hombre named Yosemite Sam evoked no sympathy at all. He was conceived as a more challenging adversary for Bugs Bunny. That's who I am! You don't say! Well, come here, shorty, come here. You don't say I told you, but uh, there's a guy in the next car that says he's the meanest, toughest, etc., etc., and he's got a seven-shooter to prove it. How's about that? There is! Wow! Blast the vomit wide open! Yosemite Sam! It's Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Sam! Yeah, Yosemite Sam! The roughest, toughest He-Man, stuffest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande! I'm the fastest gun north, south, east, and west of the Pecos! I'm the... Yeah, shit! Did I hear someone say, shut up? Yep. I'm giving you one second to draw a gun. How's that, Chunky? Say, that's a right smart picture you got there, partner. You know, I'm fair to middling with a pencil myself. Look at here. Quit looking over my shoulder. It bothers me. 
Vikings. Why you By the late 1950s, Mel was on top of the world. And when we come back, the final installment of this hour-long celebration of the life of Mel Blank, his story continues here on Our American Stories. What have I done? I've killed the rabbit. Poor little bunny. Poor little rabbit. <laughs> Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Let me save your crop. Daintily, daintily. Hey, you. Don't look so perplexed. Why must you be vexed? Can't you see you're next? Yes, you're next. You're so next. How about a nice close shave? Teach your whiskers to behave. Lots of leather, lots of soap. Please hold still, don't be a dope. Now we're ready for the scraping. There's no use to try escaping. Yell and scream and rant and rave. It's no use, you need a shave. Ooh, ouch, ouch, ooh, ouch, ooh, ooh, ouch. There, you're nice and clean. Although your face looks like it might have gone through a machine. And this is our American Stories, the last part of this terrific story about the one, the only, Mel Blanc. Although he never personally won an Academy Award, his voice earned Warner Brothers five Oscars. Then, on the night of January 24th, 1961, this happened. My mom called me, I was with friends, and she says, Dad didn't show up at the recording session. She says, wait a minute, the other phone is ringing, we had two lines. It was UCLA Hospital saying that he had been involved in a head-on collision on Dead Man's Curve, right above UCLA, and they had taken him to UCLA after they had, cut to, they had to use a cutting torch to get him out of the Aston Martin. It happened that a kid driving a, a 98 Oldsmobile, a great big car, ran into a small Aston Martin sports car, and it just folded up. They didn't expect him to live for the first 12, 13 days. I went to see him, and it was really, um, I, I was shocked because he was wired up with all kinds of gadgets to keep him together. Noel told me that almost every bone in his body was broken. He was unconscious for a long time. Finally, a doctor got an idea because my dad had a television in his room and it was playing Bugs Bunny cartoons. So the doctor went over to the bed and clapped his hands and said, Bugs, can you hear me? Bugs, can you hear me? My dad goes, what's up, Doc? The first words that he uttered were of Bugs. Then he says, Porky, can you hear me? And he would answer me, I can, I can, I can hear you. So he brought him around doing the characters' voices before my dad was fully awake as, as himself. Blank continued working for Warner Brothers, but also began providing voices for television cartoons produced by Hanna-Barbera. His most famous role during this time was Barney Rubble from the Flintstones. Oh boy, wait till Fred sees my new bowling ball. It'll bring my score up to at least 100. And of course he was Mr. Spacely in the Jetsons. Send up Jetson, Miss Gamma. Oh, yes, sir. Ready, Mr. Jetson? Right. Well, good luck. 
But I don't think any of the characters he did in the later years of his life uh, had the staying power of anywhere near the staying power of the uh, immortal Looney Tune characters. Everywhere you go, everybody knows to love Bugs Bunny. They don't know Mel Blanc, but they know Bugs Bunny, and everybody knows that. I cannot tell you the quantity of fan mail he received and something really really phenomenal about him that man answered every piece of correspondence personally he would call people he'd get a letter oh it's my daughter's birthday she's turning 12 her favorite character is Tweety Bird it would be so terrific sir you know if you ever have time could you call my daughter and Mel would call these people from all over the world and literally wish them happy birthday or happy anniversary or whatever the, the, the celebration was. When he lived in Playa del Rey or Pacific Palisades, kids would come over every day and say, Mel, can we have your autograph? Do some voices. And we'd have kids at the door, I mean, literally every day. Halloween, we'd have 1,500 to 2,000 kids. And he'd give out signed little autographs and candy. The kids would always go to Mel and Estelle's house because they never knew who was going to answer the door. Bugs or Porky or Peppy or Daffy or Wiley or Roadrunner, you never know. So it was it was great to watch that. It was really, really wonderful. Here's legend of Hollywood's golden age, Kirk Douglas. The longer I'm in this business, the more I feel that we we really are very lucky people. Because in a strange way we attain immortality and if you judge immortality by the pleasure that you've given to others I would certainly say that Mel Blanc is one of the greatest of the immortals he devoted a lot of time in burn units um, for ailing children and I think he really had a great effect in doing so, and even if it made him feel better for just a minute, he did. We had to try to get him to leave, first of all. I mean, he would spend all day doing it. I mean, there would be times I would say, you know, Mel, we've got to go, it's getting dark, you know, we've, we've got to get back on the road. And when there were children and children, you know, in that situation, he, um, you couldn't get him to walk away. If I saw a person smile, that to me was payment in itself. And, and uh, uh, if I could make them laugh when they had been very sad, it, it was great payment to me. Thanks, Jennifer, for helping us tell the story. Thank you, bud. <laughs> On May 30th, 1988, Mel Blanc turned 80. Who Framed Roger Rabbit premiered that year, and Blanc contributed many voices to the summer blockbuster. A huge party was thrown by Warner Brothers on its Burbank lot. And again, Mel was asked the same question he had been asked every birthday since he turned 65. Mel, when are you going to retire? Mel's answer? The day I drop. That's when. Who'd want to quit making people laugh? On July 1989, when he agreed to star in a new commercial for Oldsmobile, Neither he nor his son, Noel, would know that this would be his final performance. 
Here's Noel and Mel bantering inside the Cutlass Sierra in between takes. You'll hear Noel doing his father's character's voices too. Growing up, Mel trained Noel on the voices so that when the time came, he could take over for his father. Is that any, is that any good? Yeah, we are the new generation of olds? Yes. Yeah, that's pretty good. We're the new generation of olds. The director there is out pulling his hair, but we're going to do this commercial anyhow. What hair? <laughs> oh, he's got... <laughs> it's that one. It's not the art director. Well, how would Yosemite Sam say this? We are the new generation of olds. In, look, in the, look at the dealer right there and talk to him. We are the new generation of old. Now you heard that, you better believe it. We are, and we're going to try to do this commercial, but it's tough. Anyway, we got this director... Tough, he says. <laughs> Very simple. We've <laughs> only been on it about 27 hours. We had shot the Oldsmobile commercial all day. It's not your father's Oldsmobile. And uh, I said, Dad, uh, you're coughing a little bit. Why don't you go to the doctor and get your lungs cleared out? The doctor called me and said, yeah, Mel's over here. And the doctor says, well, I can keep him in the hospital overnight or just give him a, a, some, an inhaler to get the cough out of it. My dad said, no, let's stay in the hospital overnight. It was a mistake, of course. He fell out of bed. They forgot to put the bed rails up. He broke his femur, got fed emboli into the brain, and was basically gone in 48 hours. He was still at the height of his career. He could still do all the voices that he could before, and he was still really terrific. Mel Blanc lays to rest in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Under a Star of David, the epitaph on Blanc's tombstone reads, That's all, folks. Mel Blanc has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 6385 Hollywood Boulevard. He is the only person to have himself and two of his characters on the Walk of Fame, with both Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker receiving a star. The only others to have received this honor are Walt Disney as both himself and Mickey Mouse, Jim Henson as both himself and Kermit the Frog, and Mike Myers as both himself and Shrek. Mel Blanc is one of the pillars of entertainment, an actor whose talents can still be marveled at today. My dad's legacy is laughter. He wanted to make people feel good and laugh out loud. The thing I miss most about my dad is my dad and his personality, being the great father, listening to me, never doubting me, asking good questions, being great to my mom. The fact that he was such a, a marvelous human being, not only to the world, but to his family, that's what I remember most. I can turn his voice on any time and see one of the cartoons. So I can really bring him back to life at any time I want to. I hear his voice every day. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And... Suppose I was a smelly skunk, I wouldn't have a friend. I'd be alone excepting for a cent I couldn't spend. Suppose I was a gator in the swamps where time would drag. Until the day when I'd be made into a traveling bag. So I'm glad to be the way I am. Who cares if I look funny? No matter what the others have, I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny. 
Suppose I was a turkey, then I'd end up on a tray In the middle of the table on the next Thanksgiving day Suppose I was a bullfrog, croaking out a note I dread the time when I would be a frog in someone's throat So I'm glad to be the way I am Who cares if I look funny, no matter what the others have I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny Okay, bad news first. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification. Which we can't fake. And vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below. Which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now once we get down the shaft though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well, Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after, it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment. And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. We had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning, and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those, and he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, 
and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed. The metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now. And the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license, and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. <laughs> and that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all. And uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2, the one in the movie. And he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, up hills, down hills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was. And I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it. And it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels, it had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike, straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar. So I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem, well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot, and I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. 
Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story, Nate Scott's story, here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do, ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Marriage on the Mind series with our marriage coach, Deb Olniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and also serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, you can write to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and she'll make sure to get back to you within 24 hours. And today's Marriage on the Mind story is from Emily Harden, who shared her marriage story in the New York Times recently. Her piece was titled, I Planned My Wedding in Five Days, You Could Too. And Emily graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. It was the day before my wedding, and I literally did not have a dress. In 24 hours, all my friends and family would be gathering in the Empire Ballroom. And at this point, my something borrowed was an entire church outfit from my best friend's closet. Was I concerned? Not really, actually. I decided to throw a Hail Mary at my mom and asked if she would make a skirt to match a $10 top I had found at the mall. She did, and it was lovely absolutely lovely but my wedding dress was just one of many things I was not concerned about for example five days earlier which was a Thursday which also happened to be New Year's Eve I was on the phone with the woman who had become my banquet coordinator Uh, The conversation took place about an hour after I got officially engaged as Rob and I were hiking in the hills of Sedona in Arizona. The conversation went like this. Her. (coughs) Excuse me, you are getting married in five days and you are just calling me now? Me. Well, I actually think I'm being quite generous. I just got engaged an hour ago, and you are my very first call. I figured I should work out some logistics before texting everyone. And no, I am not pregnant. Just to make that clear. Her. Well, that is unusual. How many people are you expecting? Me. Um, probably a hundred. Her. (laughs) One hundred people with five days notice? me. People do it for funerals all the time. If I underestimate, we will have leftovers. If I overestimate, I'll just make my family eat last. Her. I am 
I'm not sure how to process this. Okay, let's talk about flowers. Me. <laughs> no, thank you. Her. No flowers? Me. The room is beautiful enough. I don't think anyone will notice. It seems really wasteful. Her. Uh, how about tablecloths and napkin colors? Me. Just whatever is cheapest and most convenient. I don't really care. Her. You don't have colors? Me. Well, um, I guess the only suit my fiance has right now is navy. And he has a pink tie. Everything else is in storage, so I guess we'll go with that for my wedding colors. Navy and pink. Her. Is this a joke? My entire luncheon was planned in an hour. Because Rob Reading, my now husband, and I knew each other for four years and had been dating over the past year, we knew we wanted to spend eternity together. In fact, as a side note, we already had met with our bishops for pre-marriage approval, but had not become officially engaged. And because my husband's maritime work and a transfer from London to the Bay Area, along with me working on the Little Sisters of the Poor Supreme Court case, we figured we had two options in the moment after his proposal. We could get married in a week, or get married in a year. We eagerly decided it was T minus five days to put my theory to the test. So let's people ask, why, why five days? Well, long ago, I became convinced that modern weddings were unnecessarily burdensome. My theory was you could plan a beautiful wedding in a week. The second call I made that day in the desert was to my parents, who told me their prayers were answered. And the third call I made that afternoon was to the Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wasn't exactly concerned about getting a slot at the temple because Tuesday mornings isn't exactly prime time for weddings. So at this point, it was still day one of planning, and I already had my ceremony and my reception site secured. Wedding invitations were sent out a few hours later via text message with a collage of selfies saying, would love to have you come if you can make it. No gifts, just love. I then called in favors from best friends to do photos and hair and makeup and I pulled strings to get performers and an MC for the event. So as the last of six children to get married, not to mention the fact that I've had 13 foster siblings, my parents were not complaining. In addition, the small farm town that I grew up in, literally there were more cows than humans, um, the town was rejoicing that the two of us in our 30s and 40s that we were getting married at all. Okay, to be sure, I acknowledge that five days notice was inconvenient and there were a few people who couldn't make it. But whether it is five days or five years, it would have been inconvenient and there would have been those who would have missed it. And surprisingly, there were only a handful of close friends who couldn't make it, which is the same rate as any wedding. And some of the best parts, the total planning time, 
26 hours, and that includes me shopping for my dress, and the total cost, $4,500. The result, on January 5th, 2016, was the perfect wedding day. People commented that it couldn't have been more lovely if I had an entire year to plan it. And guess what? Not a single person noticed that we didn't have flowers. In fact, I've even polled a lot of the people at my wedding to ask, hey, did you notice? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't notice you didn't have flowers. Side note. So, as my mother Marilyn said, hallelujah. Hallelujah for putting the relationship above the wedding. Hallelujah for not worrying about complicated logistics. And hallelujah for not having enough time to change your mind. Thank you, mother. Well, Ra kept saying to me throughout the five-day process, what do you want me to do? And I kept telling him there wasn't anything for him to do. And here's why. With each social expectation for weddings, I asked myself two questions. One, does this achieve the goal of making people at my wedding feel loved and appreciated for the role they played in my life? Or two, Will it help strengthen my marriage and the promises that we made to each other? If the answer was no, I didn't waste any more time. I now appreciate applying this to other areas of my life. Now that we're married, I ask myself, is where we go to dinner eternally significant? If not, why argue over it? Or do party favors for the barbecue you're giving matter? Probably not. I say, enjoy the path of least resistance. If it truly represents the most important elements of your life and your relationship, then put time and put energy and put creativity into it. But if not, do yourself a favor and skip the stress. You know, and in all this, Rob also saw the beauty in our very short engagement and the microburst planning period. He said, the longer it plays out, the longer the nuisance. It would have just been an obstacle to starting our life, so why wait? So, you know what? I may not have a $200 gravy boat, and I may have worn an 888 Walmart wedding ring that eventually turned my finger green, but our flowerless navy and pink wedding set the perfect precedent for married life. Elegantly simple. And thank you, Emily, for that. And when we come back, we will be joined by Deb Wolniak to talk about weddings, stress, and so much more. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Emily Hartman's story from the New York Times. I plan my wedding in five days. You could too.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Marriage on the Mind segment. And joining us, as always, is Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach. And Deb, what a great story to hear, and what a, what a fresh and wonderful voice. I almost want to have Emily on a couple of times a year and just play this so anyone going through the tumult of a wedding plan uh, can just maybe just ditch it. Uh, talk about uh, your first impressions when you heard this. Well, it is refreshing. That's the key word there, because so many couples get tied up in knots, literally, <laughs> about planning a wedding that is there to, you know, maybe it's been a dream of somebody for a long time, but ultimately when that wedding is done and they're spending an average of 35000 on a wedding now in America. Um, Deb, no, hold on a second, Deb. You said 35000 is the yeah. average? Yes, that's the average. It does include our big cities like New York at 78, Chicago at 60, and L.A. at 44. But, you know, the reality is most couples are spending around ten grand. That is the goal. But even then, for some folks, that is a huge stretch. And to have couples that are having 200 guests or so, that is a big responsibility. And let me tell you, when that's done and the honeymoon's over, your reality is going to set in. Um, this is a commitment I made for the rest of my life. And what do I have to show from weddings? Some awesome pictures, some great memories. Absolutely. Those are all things that are important. But what did you do financially that's going to set you ahead or back at the starting line of your marriage? And, and Deb, you know, coming into the marriage, this first crisis point, I actually think the wedding is the first crisis point. And so if you two learn how to negotiate through that crisis point, my wife and I did it fast like this. We did it cheap because we just said we are not incurring debt to go yeah. into the future of our life. And as, you, as we've talked about, Deb, finances is one of the key strains on a marriage. What oh. a crazy way and what a crazy precedent to set for your marriage. How are you going to handle other crisis points? The first house comes up. You want to keep up with the Joneses. So you get a house you can't afford, so on and so forth. So right. talk about, as a marriage coach, how this is an opportunity for a good coach uh, to come between a couple and have them think about the long view of marriage and these other crisis financial points that come. Because from a car to a house and to vacations, where right. and how we spend our money on those three things can right. either lead to financial ruin or to financial health. And we know what happens to marriages that are financially healthy. They have a right. better shot. Yes, they do, and that you're on the same page for those things. So I'm going to challenge folks that are listening to, hey, yes, have a designer wedding, one that fits your pocketbook, your lifestyle, and your goals. That's an important lesson. But also have a designer marriage. So many people go into the act of getting married that they don't consider how their relationship stage is at and really knowing where the other person is at when you make that, let's face it, business decision for life. You would not go into a partnership with a business without checking out the other person's motives and goals first and to know where that other per person is at and that you're on the same page. Why would you go into a lifelong commitment for marriage and not check those things out? I believe there's a lot of people that have a great, great love for each other that don't take the time to do the double checks before they walk down the aisle. And don't you want to know that you know that you know why you're marrying that person? The good, the bad, and the ugly. The things that really help us identify none of us are perfect. But I am willing and ready 
to make that commitment to that individual come hell or high water because this is my person that I'm going to team with for the rest of my life. And I love this person. Let's not forget about that. The second you throw the wedding ring, engagement ring, I'm sorry, on your finger is the second that most couples turn off the relationship building power and go into action mode. I got to get this thing and this and this. And you'll see it with a lot of brides. They just go into the zone sometimes with their their mothers that they just get so involved in the wedding. They forget about the relationship. They come to the day and that bride is on one end of the aisle or the you know, wherever you're getting married at, and the groom's at the other, and she's going or he's going, oh, my gosh, I hope this works. And if you think you're thinking that right now and you're planning your wedding, you need to stop and make sure you have a coach that can come alongside you and do some of that premarital coaching that is so, so important. I will always say prepare and enrich is one of the number one ways in 30 minutes that you can find out where your strength areas are and where your challenge areas are so you as a couple can go through this lesson plan of six weeks and know where you're at, know exactly how you're going to use the tools on relationship wellness to build your relationship so you can have the relationship everybody else envies because they want the same thing too, whether they tell you or not. It's not about the car you drive or the house that you have or 2.5 kids. It is about a solid relationship that you can come home to and feel that safety and warmth and love. And that is something we all crave. And no dollar is going to get you there. You have to work on it yourself. And Deb, you talk a little bit about, in our notes, about the social media aspect of this and how appearances versus reality is intruding into all of our lives. And let's face it, nobody puts a, a bad experience on Facebook. And everybody's right. looking to see if they can outdo or outgame the next person on social media. And so in some respects, costs have probably amped up because people are competing against one another for the superior uh-huh. wedding, the better photo, the better picture. This actually harms relationships. I, I can't wait to see the 10-year and 20-year studies of Facebook on human psychology. But talk about how it might affect and disrupt a marriage. I'll give you one very good example why this came up. I was told the other, I have not seen this footage, but there was a couple that was getting engaged, and the gentleman was so nice to be able to maybe have his friend from the bushes take and take pictures and make sure the video was ready so they could put that up on Facebook afterward. And as he got down on one knee and asked this girl to marry him, the first thing she said, is there a camera? Is there a video? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there is. Oh, that's great. Um, Can we redo this? I mean, she took the moment away from him, and he was so patient with her. They did it 30 times. 30. Why? Because they wanted that perfect moment. But the crazy thing is they'll never get it because that moment was taken away by image. And I'm going to tell you what. I know a lot of people are going with that right now because they want to outdo their friends. You have nothing when you do that. Nothing. People do not understand what love is anymore. They don't understand relationship. They're getting into that social media and the front, what you're wearing, what you're doing, where you're going, takes, takes precedence over true relationship. And part of that is intimacy and vulnerability. If you cannot be truly honest with your future spouse or your spouse, you need to get help to run the marathon that marriage is. It's not a sprint. It's not a photo. It's not a video. It is about you and your partner with the raw naked truth 
on the fact that you have to grow your relationship and you are the only two that can do it. That's it. It's, if you don't know what that means, you have a problem. You need to get some help. It's so true, Deb. And by the way, I was at a, a Tom Petty concert about a month ago, and, and Jesse was at the same show. And it was so irritating. My wife and I are finally like, there's couples all around us, and they're holding, the th- they're holding up their camera. And I'm going, can you just watch a concert? Can you just experience something together? Do you have to be in it? And posted to your friends how lucky you are and how unlucky they are. It's real. It's it's crazy, Deb. That the, what people are doing with their own lives—they're turning their own lives into movies. And look right. at movie stars' lives. It doesn't end well. So why do you want this kind of fame, Deb? We love the we love the coaching. Thanks for that note. And as always, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to what you have next week for us. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. Our marriage coach. And she also happens to serve on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. This has been her life's work, and she's our marriage coach here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the story of a song. We brought you There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Light My Fire by The Doors, Give Me Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our podcasts. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of great American storytelling. And now, the story behind the song, The House of the Rising Sun. Here's Jesse. I was on assignment in New Orleans, walking towards Bourbon Street, when I heard a grisly voice yelling at me from across the street. Hey, you! Do you know where you're standing? A disheveled transient yelled. I was petrified. Rather than say anything, I simply shook my head with my mouth open, thinking I was about to get robbed or shanked or both. His words echoed down the street, sending a shiver up my spine. I looked up at the bright white three-story building gleaming in the morning sun. Could this be the place? I had completely forgotten it was here. It's almost as if it found me. Like many classic folk ballads, The House of the Rising Sun is of uncertain authorship. And it turns out that this is one of several possible locations for the legendary Bordello. The oldest published version of the lyrics is that printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column titled Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster, who recorded it on September 6th of 1933. 
It's a song that's been covered from artists like Dolly Parton to Nina Simone, Waylon Jennings to Joan Baez. Bob Dylan liked the song so much that he recorded it on his first album in 1962. There is a house down in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. Now, the release had no songwriting credit, but the liner notes indicate that Dylan learned this version of the song from Dave Van Ronk. Here's Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk from the documentary No Direction Home. God, I'm a one. The House of the Rising Sun is on that record. Well, I'd never done that song before, but I heard it every night because Van Ronk would do it. So, you know, I thought he was really onto something with the song, so I just recorded it. Bobby picked up the chord changes for the song. For me, it really altered the song considerably, although the lyric was pretty much the straight House of the Rising Sun lyric, and so was the melody. And when he was doing, I guess it was his first album, he asked me if I would mind if, I, you know, if he recorded my version of House of the Rising Sun. And I had some plans to record it, so I said, well, gee, Bob, I'd rather you didn't because I'm going to record it myself soon. And Bobby said, uh-oh. The mystery of being in a recording studio did something to me, and those are the songs that came out. Now the only thing a gambler needs is a seed. After he recorded it, I had to stop singing the song because people were constantly uh, accusing me of having got the song from Bobby's record. Now that was very, very annoying, but I couldn't blame that on him, and I, I didn't. The whole thing was a tempest in a teapot. Later on, when Eric Burden and the Animals picked the song up from Bobby and recorded it, Bobby told me that he had had to drop the song because everybody was accusing him of ripping it off from Eric Burden. <laughs> that version from the Animals was the most successful commercial version to date, recorded in 1964 in just one take. It was a number one hit in the UK, US, and France. Oh, mother, tell your children When Bob Dylan first heard the Animals version on his car radio, he stopped to listen, jumped out of the car, and began banging his fists on the hood. This was the sound that made Bob Dylan switch from an acoustic guitar to an electric.
Various places in New Orleans have been proposed as the inspiration for the song with varying plausibility. The phrase House of the Rising Sun is often understood as a euphemism for a brothel, but it's not known whether or not the house described in the lyrics was an actual or a fictitious place. One theory is that the song is about a woman who killed her father, an alcoholic gambler, who had beaten his wife. Therefore, the House of the Rising Sun might be a jailhouse from which one would be the first to see the sunrise. An idea supported by the lyric mentioning a ball and chain, but that phrase has been slang for marital relationships for at least as long as the song has been in print. Because women often sang the song, another theory is that the House of the Rising Sun was where prostitutes were detained while treated for syphilis. Since cures with mercury were ineffective, going back was very unlikely. There are many places that could be the legendary House of the Rising Sun. One possible location was a small hotel in the French Quarter that burned down in 1822. Another possibility is the Rising Sun Hall, listed in the 19th century city directions which no longer exist. And another possible location is here, at 826 St. Louis Street in the French Quarter. Between 1862 and 1874, and it was a house of ill repute, run by a Madame Marianne Lesolie Levant. There is a house in the surname means the rising sun in French. Here's the platters from 1965. some that say the building is just part of our imagination, a symbol of sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. Or to paraphrase Freud, sometimes lyrics are just lyrics. Here's Waylon Jennings. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. There is a house down in New They call the rising sun And it's been the ruin For many poor boy And me, oh God, I'm one She sewed these old blue jeans My father was a gambler 
thing a gambler needs Is a suitcase and a trunk And the only time he's ever satisfied Is when he's on a drunk Sure. 